me invite you, if you've got a Bible, to turn to uh, the book of Titus. This morning, looking at what Paul wrote to this young pastor in a whole different time, in a whole different place. I think it's incredibly relevant for what we're doing here today. Well, Jason, you have, uh, I guess, officially been installed now as the pastor of First Baptist Hacienda Heights. You've been installed like an app on a phone or a new refrigerator or a piece of plumbing under the sink. I, I, the word installed for a pastor is a funny thing, and I've often wondered if we could have come up with a better word for the installation of a pastor. Like, why didn't we go with something more, more grandiose? Like, we're going to do the inauguration of our pastor this morning. Or if we want to get a little bit more religious about it, we could have said, we're going to do the investiture of our pastor this morning. That'd be a little bit more grand, wouldn't it? That's a little bigger. It sounds a little more glorious. But the more I've thought about it over the years, I kind of like the word installed. I kind of like it because when Jason becomes your pastor today, he's becoming a workman, like a refrigerator, like a piece of plumbing under the sink. His job is to sort of, you know, keep things moving here at First Baptist Church, to, to do the things that are necessary to make sure that uh, the Spirit is able to work and the church is able to grow. So I think it's actually it turns out to be a good thing. And I think we see that here in the book of Titus as Paul talks about sort of the job description of an elder, of a pastor. I think in a sermon like this, it's, it's a little bit easy sometimes for a congregation to check out because what they think is basically that the guy who's standing up here to be the guest preacher at the installation of the pastor is basically just going to be looking at the pastor and his wife the entire time and preaching to them about what they need to do as the pastor and the pastor's wife. Well, that's part of what Paul does in Titus chapter 1, but it's only part of what Paul does. Because what he's doing is not just addressing Titus as the pastor of the church. He's also addressing the congregation who has gathered together around the ministry of, of the word that that pastor is carrying out. So there are things in Titus 1 that I think are going to be just spot on relevant to you as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what I want to try to do today as we look at this passage is just encourage you in who you are as First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights and then encourage you as you welcome this man into the pastorate of, of your church. So that's where we're headed today. Let's look at the text. We're going to read it all the way through, and then, uh, and then we're going to talk about it. I think you've got it printed. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, I think it's printed there in your bulletin somewhere, so you can read along there. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are subordinate, who are insubordinate, talkers and deceivers, 
especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. At uh, 3rd Avenue, when I'm preaching there, I like to, to sort of summarize the text that we're preaching with what I call a so it's like one or two sentences that hold down the main thing that the author of Scripture is saying to his readers, and therefore what the, the Holy Spirit through him is saying to us. And I think the main idea of this passage in Titus is something like this. What you do here as a local church may look to the world around you pretty small and insignificant. But the reality is that it is a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. And so there really could be nothing more important. That's the main idea. What we do here, what you do here as a local church may look to the world around you as something small and insignificant. But actually it's a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. And therefore nothing could be more important. Let me give you a little bit of background about this, uh, this letter to Titus. Paul wrote this short little letter to a close friend of his named Titus. Uh, Titus, it, it seemed terrible. A uh, man of talent. He was a Greek. He was a Gentile. Uh, a fact which absolutely must have been in Paul's mind when he wrote that phrase in verse 2. You are a true child in a common faith. See, Paul would have been normally separated from, from Titus by this wide gulf of, of culture. And yet what he's saying is, Titus, even though I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile, you are my true child in a common faith. We are united across the cultural chasm and the ethnic chasm by something greater and deeper than just those things. We're united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Titus had gone with Paul on his trip to Jerusalem. It was this kind of test case to make it clear that circumcision wasn't going to be necessary for a person to become a Christian. So you can see what Paul's doing there. He's taking this Gentile who's uncircumcised and sort of pushing him right into the heart of, of you know, Christians who had converted from Judaism and saying, look, here's a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. And I just want to put a stake in the ground that you don't have to be circumcised. In other words, you don't have to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. So Paul is setting that stake in the ground with Titus. He also, Titus, acted as Paul's representative to the Corinthian church and played a big hand in reconciling that church to Paul. I don't know if you've studied that, but apparently Paul gets into this horrific argument with the church in Corinth. There's just all kinds of stuff going on. It's the reason we have First and then Second Corinthians. If you kind of read between the lines of those letters and a couple more, it looks like what happened is that Paul actually sent Timothy at first to try to bring peace to the Corinthian church, between, between himself and the Corinthian church. And Timothy seems to have failed, which is, which is partly why you get all this, this language in the New Testament about Timothy being young and don't let people despise you. And Timothy, you need, you're, you're not filled with a spirit of fear and timidity, but power and love and self-discipline. Paul's kind of having to buck Timothy up after this apparent failure to bring peace between him and the Corinthian church. So he hands the whole matter over to Titus, apparently. And Titus brings the thing to peace. So he was a man of really considerable talents. You can see a few things reading through this book, uh, this, this letter that Paul wrote to him. We know from reading it that when this letter was written, 
Paul had left Titus on Crete, which was this mountainous island off the coast of Greece. And what he wanted was for Timothy to help set in order some matters and some new churches that had begun there, which apparently were not set in order yet. The problem with the book of Titus is that it's really hard to say when exactly it was written. If you take the, uh, the, the events of the book of Acts and kind of try to fit Titus anywhere into the book of Acts, it just really doesn't work. And so the most likely explanation is, in fact, that Acts was not, the end of Acts was not really the end of Paul's life, that Paul was probably released from the, the house arrest that he was under uh, at the end of Acts, that he maybe even made it all the way to Spain, and that in those years, however long that was between the end of Acts and Paul's eventual death, at some point in that you know, area of life, he wrote First and Second Timothy and Titus. At any rate, it's a fascinating letter because it, it reveals Paul's heart for these churches on the island of Crete. And what you learn from the, the, the book is that life was not easy for these churches. They were Christians who were under attack. And it turns out, as you read the book, that the struggles these churches were facing on Crete are exactly the same struggles that every church throughout time and history faces at one point or another. In fact, I think that's why the book is included in the Bible in the first place. And it's highly relevant to us today because even if we don't face these particular challenges now, even if you as First Baptist Church, Hacienda Heights, are not facing these particular challenges right now, eventually you will. Or at least you'll face these challenges, face challenges that look like these. And what we need to do as Christians and as churches is not just take problems as they come, but be prepared for these problems. Like take the warnings of Scripture as they come to us and sort of use them as, as armor to put on before the arrows of the enemy start flying. So that's part of the reason that we're going to study this section of Titus right here at the beginning of Jason's ministry. I think if you look at this, uh, if you look at this chapter, you can see it breaks down pretty easily into three sections, uh, three paragraphs probably uh, in your Bible. So verses 1 to 4, then you've got verses 5 to 9, and then you've got 10 through 16. And each one of those paragraphs is doing a slightly different thing, though they're all kind of connected to one another. And we'll see how that, how that works as we go today. So three points to the sermon, just kind of uh, corresponding to those three paragraphs. Number one, the church's driving motivations. That's the first paragraph, verses one to four. Paul's going to tell us what drives the church in all of its efforts, in all of its perseverance. So that's point number one, the church's driving motivations. Number two, the church's leaders, that's verses 5 to 9. What kind of men ought to lead local churches? And then number 3, he turns to talk about why you need those leaders in the first place, which is the church's enemies. So those three points, the church's driving motivations, the church's leaders, and the church's enemies. My hope, brothers and sisters, is that as we're looking at this passage today, that these words from Paul will actually stir your heart up to recognize the eternal stakes of what you're doing here as a local church. What you're doing here is not just a social club. It's not just a time when you come together to fellowship. You are doing things of eternal significance. And Jason, when you take on leadership of this, you're taking on leadership not just of a social club, not just of a, a get-together for you know, food every once in a while. You're taking on leadership of something that has eternal stakes. And my prayer is that not just you, Jason, and you, Karis, but all of you as members of this church will give your lives to strengthening and defending her. So point number one, the church's driving motivations. Let's look at that first paragraph, verses one to four. Like most of the letters uh, that were ever written in the ancient world, this one begins with the writer of it, the apostle Paul, just 
introducing himself, right? So in the, you know, it, the way we do it with, with modern letters is that we'll usually start with who we are addressing it to, you know, right? Like, dear Joe. And then we say what we want to say, and then we sign it at the end, you know, sincerely, Greg. That's how we do it. We put, the, we put ourselves at the end of the letter and the, the recipient of it at the top. It was a little bit different in the ancient days. The way you would start a letter in the ancient days is just like Paul does here. You would say, this letter is from Greg to Joe. Here's what I want to say. Right. That's how you would that's how you do the letter. That's exactly what Paul does. He introduces himself. Then he addresses it to Titus like he normally does. Paul introduces himself here as an apostle, which means a specially sent one. The, the Greek word uh, that underlies apostle. For some reason, we don't translate that word out of the Greek. We just leave it apostle. Right. Because it's apostolos and we just change it into apostle. Uh, so we don't translate that word for, for some reason. But if you did translate it, it would just mean one who is sent, a sent one. And Paul very much understood himself to be that, right? Paul meets him on the road to Damascus. He converts him, makes him a Christian, and then says, Paul, I am personally Jesus sending you to the, to the, 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 to the Gentiles. You're going to be the sent one to the Gentiles. And Paul took that on as a, a foundational piece of his I am one who was sent specially and personally by Jesus. And so in every one of his letters, he says that. I'm a specially sent one of Jesus Christ. Also, he says, I'm a servant or a slave even of God. Then in the next verses, you've got two phrases that I think in an almost unique way in these introductions to letters, let us into Paul's heart. Not only for his ministry as an apostle of Jesus and servant of God, but I think also for these churches on Crete in particular, and therefore for all churches. So I want you to look at a couple of phrases here. First of all, look how Paul says that he is an apostle and a servant of God. And he says there, I am those things for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with, or that means leads to godliness. You see that? I am an apostle. It's verse one. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am a servant of God for this reason. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with, that means leads to godliness. You see, you see what Paul is saying there? I do what I do as an apostle. I do what I do as a, as a servant of God for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's the first thing. In other words, I do what I do because I know that out there, there are people whom God has elected and to whom he is absolutely going to give the gift of faith. And I do what I do so that those elect might be called out and the gift of faith might be given to them and they might become Christians. You see what that means, right? When Paul launches into this apostolic ministry, he has no doubt whatsoever that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to accomplish what it was meant to accomplish. It's not going to fail. There's no way it can fail because God has determined in his sovereignty that it's going to succeed. And Paul's saying that, that that's God's elect. He has chosen men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who are going to hear this word of the gospel that I'm preaching as an apostle and a servant, and they will respond. Now, that's a, that's a glorious truth that the Bible teaches, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was never in doubt. It's not as if the father came to the son at some point and said, listen, son, here's the deal. There's some people down there that really need to be saved from their sins. What that's going to mean for you is that you've got to become one of them for all eternity. You have to become a man, and you have to die for them and rise again. But the catch is, turns out they've all got this thing called free will, 
and we don't know that this whole plan is actually ever even going to succeed. No, that's not it. That's not, what he, that's not what he said to the son. He said, son, I have elected people. I will, in fact, bring them to spiritual life. When the word of your gospel hits their heart, my spirit will regenerate them, and your people will be saved. There's no doubt about it. So Paul says, everything I do, I do for their sake, for their good, so that those elect might come to faith in Jesus. Look at the second part of that phrase, too. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, I mean, that, that would almost be enough, right, if he just stopped there. I do what I do for the sake of the faith of God's elect. But he doesn't stop. He goes on and says, I do this also for their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. Which means that Paul is not just interested in seeing people converted to Christianity. He also wants to see Christians growing in the faith learning more about the Word of God, learning more about Jesus, and then as they learn more, growing in godliness. So what he's saying there is that the Christian message, the Christian gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, it's not a dead message. It's not like it just lands in your heart and does this one little thing of bringing you to life and then that's kind of it. It's not how the gospel works. When the gospel comes into your heart and takes root and the Holy Spirit gives your heart new spiritual life, the gospel begins to work. It begins to do things in you. It gives you a desire to know God's word more. And as you know God's word more, you begin to grow in godliness. The Christian message is living and active. It takes root in your heart and it goes somewhere. It works. I want you to see another phrase in here. Look at verse 2. I do all of this, he says, for, for these reasons, for the sake of the faith of the elect and their growth in godliness. I do it for that reason, and I do it, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. See, it's a, it's a great goal that Paul works for. As he does the work of the ministry, it's a great goal, not a small goal. It's a hope of eternity, a hope of an eternity, an unending time of joy and endless happiness with God. You can see there, too, that for Paul, it's also a sure hope of eternity that he's working toward. The word hope has gotten sort of messed up in our world, right? I mean, if you, if you think about the way the world around us uses the word hope, hope means a kind of just wish, right? I hope, you know, for the 27th year in a row, I hope the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl this year. But you and I both know that that's just a wish. It ain't going to happen, right? But that's the way we use the word hope. We use the word hope to just mean, I, I hope this happens. I wish it would. I, I kind of think it might, but I don't have a ton of confidence that it's going to. That is not the Christian word for hope. And anytime you read it in the Bible, you should just sort of, you know, deprogram it in your mind to mean that does not just mean that that person is wishing. It means that that person is confident that this thing is going to happen. That's the root meaning of the word hope. It's confidence that it's going to happen. And so Paul is saying, I do this with confidence that eternity is waiting for me. It's a sure hope. And now Paul's been entrusted with declaring that to the world. So if you, if you take those couple of phrases and wrap it all up, I think you can see something of Paul's heartbeat here. What he does, he does for the sake of the elect, and he does it all in the sure hope that at the end of the race, there is eternal life. That's what it's all aiming for. Now, here's the thing I want you to, I want you to see in this. Those two driving motivations calling out of the elect and the, the hope of eternal life, those driving motivations are not just apostolic motivations. 
You can't just say, well, Paul wrote this, so therefore he can do that and he can have hope of eternal life. But we as Christians don't have a right to those things. No, these are not just apostolic motivations. They are Christian motivations. So they're the kinds of motivations, the kinds of big drivers that ought to drive you to as a church. And Third Avenue back in Louisville too. See, I, I think it is so incredibly easy to just forget what we are about as local churches. To think that what we really are as a local church is just this kind of pathetic little social organization that more or less exists for its own sake and that power to change the world, to make a difference, to do anything really lies elsewhere. It, it lies in the, in the Capitol buildings. It lies in Washington, D.C. It lies with the, the money in that beautiful you know, Ram Stadium that you guys have here in L.A. The, 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 the power and the money lie elsewhere, but not here in, in the church. But brothers and sisters, I think what Paul is wanting you to do here is lift up your eyes and see clearly what you are as First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights. You're not just a pathetic little social organization that can just, you know, dribble some little good works on top of, you know, the great work that's being done in society. You are a fully credentialed embassy of the high king of heaven in a fallen world. You and I, as Christians, as members of a local church, strive and work to preach the gospel so that the Holy Spirit can work in dead people's hearts and draw them to faith in Jesus. You as a local church live and worship and act together so that all of you can be maturing in your knowledge of the truth and growing in godliness. And we all do it, whether here at FBC or whether at 3ABC in Louisville, we all do it with our eyes set on this sure hope that God has promised us eternal life. The fact is, it's a glorious thing that God has called us here to. And even if the world would look at us and say, you are a very small and pathetic looking thing, we, we know who we are. We know who we are. We know that the keys of the kingdom are in our hands. And even though we may be a little flock, it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Friends, think like that as you live and work here at, FB at FBC. Think like that as you go about doing the volunteer work that you do. When you, when you volunteer for the nursery, or I know... I know when it comes to the nursery and childcare, sometimes it, it feels more like you're being kidnapped into it, right? You, you get dragged off into the nursery one week and you're not super happy about it. But when you volunteer or get volunteered for the nursery, I mean, lift up your eyes a little bit and see what you're actually doing. I mean, lift your eyes up off the dirty diapers and consider that that, that little toddler, that little two-year-old that you're trying to get into the diaper or whatever may one day bow his knee to King Jesus and, and, and become a, a ruler of the universe right next to Jesus. When you're reading a book to that little girl about, about Jesus for the 15,000th time, and she's bouncing on your lap, just know that conversion to faith in Jesus Christ happens in an instant, and you don't know when it's going to happen. So when you read that line in that book for the 15th, thousandth time about Jesus loving that little girl, you have no idea but that the Holy Spirit isn't just waiting for that line to come out of your mouth and boom, it's going to convert. You don't know that. Lift up your eyes and see what you're actually doing. You're training those little ones in godliness. You're pointing their eyes to Jesus. And look, it doesn't even have to be, I, you know, I've done a lot of nursery work in, in, in my time and I've had three, three little kids it doesn't even have to be a sort of spiritual thing that's going on for the Lord to use it. 
right? So it's not like when you're in the nursery, you always have to be talking to the little kids about, about Jesus. No, like get some toy trucks and have a demolition derby. I mean, that's, that's great because you know in Providence how that works, in God's Providence how that works. The thing is, when you take your little truck, you know, and, and you throw it against the wall and that little four-year-old boy is, is watching you do that, you don't know but that the Holy Spirit might be actually using the laws of physics, to make your truck have so spectacular a crash that you are now a hero in that little boy's eyes forever. And then when the time comes, you can take that hero status and trade it in for an opportunity to tell that little boy about Jesus. And he'll listen to you, and he won't even know why he's listening to you, but it was because that truck exploded really nicely against the wall years ago. I mean, this kind of thing happened with my, my own kids. I, I could tell my kids... Uh, uh, something about Jesus 5,000 times. I mean, it, it just, it, and it never gets through, right? But then one day after church, you know, I'm, I'm looking and I see Philip Ben Steenberg over there and he's got one of my children by the ankles and is swinging them around like this. And I'm thinking his head is going to hit the floor every time, but Philip's tall, so it doesn't happen. And, and then at, at the, in the car on the drive home, the little boy says, Hey, guess what Philip told me today? And he tells me, and I'm like, I have told you that 5,000 times, but you just heard it from Philip? And then I think, praise God, that's awesome. When you work in the nursery, lift up your eyes. When you make a, 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 I don't know if you have small groups here, but you know, if you're making a meal for your small group, or you're making a meal for somebody who's had a baby, something like that, or you're spending time at a coffee shop talking to somebody, or you're sweeping the floors, or vacuuming the floors, or, or doing the lawn, or fixing the sound system, do it with your eyes high and long. Think about why you're doing it. Do it for the sake of the elect and in the hope of eternal life. Let that color your perception of your life in the church, because it is reality. It was Paul's heart, and it's got to be our heart too, if we're going to understand ourselves and our calling accurately. I mean, to you, Jason, in particular, you, you, you need to know right from the outset that the work of a pastor is not to any human eye a glorious kind of work. It, it's just not. I mean, the glory and the excitement in some jobs comes from the nature of the work. Some people make a lot of money. Some people interact with powerful people. Some people have their hands on levers of authority that can affect world events. Some people are hanging out with famous people, especially here in L.A. Not you. You're not going to be doing that. It's not what a pastor does. You know what you're going to be doing? You're going to be running off copies of stuff. You're going to be fixing audiovisual problems. You're going to be preventing two people from having an argument or a disagreement. You're going to be trying to maintain unity of a little small group that's gotten off the rails a little bit. It's not glorious work, at least in the eyes of the world, but it is good work. And in the eyes of the angels, it is glorious work. And you know why it's glorious? It's because it's not work that is designed to bring glory to you. It's designed to bring glory to Jesus. You've been installed. You're just a piece of plumbing. But you're a piece of plumbing that's meant to shovel glory toward Jesus Christ. And you've got to trust that it's doing that. The work is doing that, even on the days that are filled up with minutia, frustrations, and small stuff. Another thing that all of you need to hear, the work of a pastor... Jason, church, is not made glorious by its bigness. It's not made glorious by its bigness. And you guys here at FBC are not a big church. I mean, I don't mean to insult you. You're, you're just not. You are not a big church, and I think you know that. Maybe you will be someday. 
But then again, maybe you won't. But who cares? Who cares? Your job together as brothers and sisters in Christ, Jason's job as a pastor, Oscar and, and I'm sorry, is it Dave? Yeah, Oscar and Dave's job as, as elders is to do the glorious work of shepherding each and every one of you into the arms of your Savior. And that's glorious work. So Jason, work faithfully, pastor faithfully, preach faithfully, pray faithfully, lead faithfully, and just do those things for a long, long time. I think that's the best advice that somebody ever gave me was just do good things and do them for a very long time and don't get bored with that. This isn't meant to bring you glory. It's meant to bring Jesus glory. Here's point number two, the church's leaders. That second paragraph from five to nine. So introductions are done. Paul jumps right into why he's writing. He says, he left Titus on Crete to do a job. Verse 5, I left you there to set things in order in the churches and to appoint elders in every town. Now, just right there, let's just pause. It's a kind of side note, but it's super interesting. I want you to notice that Paul thinks organizational structure in churches is a good thing. Now, that may not be controversial here at FBC. turns out it is, in fact, controversial in many, many churches around the, around the United States. People like to think of a church as just this sort of organic, unorganized thing with no leadership, no structure. We're just going to trust the Holy Spirit to organically cause us to be unified. Paul does not believe that. He thinks structure in churches is a good thing. To have things put in order, to have recognized, appointed leadership. Paul says those are good things. So to bring it right down to brass tacks, to be organized, to have rules and systems and structures and recognized leadership is not something that churches just came up with on their own. It's not just something that we as, as pastors and leaders do for fun. Paul tells us in another place that God is a God of order, not confusion. And so he expects us to be a people, not of confusion, but of order. People who can live well under order and even under leadership and authority. So Titus is to set the churches in order, which means, among other things, I'm sure, appointing or installing elders. Uh, there's, there's no indication in the word or otherwise of exactly the process of that. You can't, like, you know, look at that word, appoint elders, right, and, and get a whole lot of information about exactly how that happened. It's a, it's a very broad word. It covers a, a, a huge range. And so probably the process for selecting elders was probably something kind of like Acts 6, where the congregation is charged by the apostles to choose seven men from among them to be deacons, and then the apostles appoint them or install them to that office. That's probably the same kind of thing that's, that's going on here. I anyway, it's crucial work that Titus is doing here, helping these churches establish their leadership. And so Paul spends a paragraph reminding Titus and through him, really, the whole church, what kind of men should lead them as elders. First thing to notice here is that he calls these leaders three different things in this paragraph. Calls them three things. Verse 5, he calls them elders. Verse 7, he calls them overseers. And also in verse 7, he calls them stewards. So what, what do those three things mean? Well, elders were well-known among the Jewish people. Everybody kind of knew what an elder was. They, they had elders in synagogues. They had elders in the Sanhedrin. You had elders in every village and town. And what those elders did was that they led and they governed. They would sit in the gate of the city that was kind of where the, the government of the, of the city sat, and the elders would make decisions about the direction or life of the city. That's what elders did. They, they, they ruled. 
Overseer, there in verse 7, refers to one function of an elder. It's not a separate office. It's not like FBC should have elders and then overseers. That's, that's not what that means. You should have men who are both elders and overseers, right? It's one office talking about different functions. And one of the things elders do, I mean, this is, this is probably the clearest one, they oversee. They watch over. That's what elders do. They watch over the life of the church, and they perform this leadership, Paul says, also in verse 7, is God's stewards. So what's a steward? Well, steward was somebody appointed by a wealthy master to manage a household or a business. And then when the master would come home from a trip or whatever it was, then the steward would have to give an account of, of what he did with the master's business or household. You know, so he had, he had full authority to act you know, in, in the life of the household, in the life of the business. But when the master came home, he was going to have to open up the books and say, you know, here's what I did. Paul is saying that elders are stewards over the household of God. Hebrews 13 says the same thing. It says that elders keep watch over your souls as men who must give an account. You ever thought about that? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a heavy burden, right? It, it, as, as a pastor, as an elder, it, it weighs on me. I'm sure it, it weighs on, on Jason. I mean, you know, I don't think you've been an elder until like you, you were elected here, right? So, I mean... I'm sure there's this like staggering moment where the, where the weight falls on you. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, every single one of you is, is going to give an account to the Lord at the last day. We, we all will. I mean, there's going to be an accounting to the Lord, but did you ever think about the fact that for your pastors, there's going to be an extra section of the account and, and, and the King himself is, is going to say to, to, to me, so, so Greg, um, Sarah, how, how did you how did you care for Sarah? Okay, and um, this other this 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 person Nick, how'd you care how'd you care for Nick? Why did why why did Greg why did you say that to Nick on that one occasion? I mean, can you imagine the weight of that? Because because Jesus the King is the one who gave his life for these people. And now for a few years or for however long, the Lord himself has placed into your elders' hands the care of people for whom he died. It's a heavy, heavy weight. Friends, keep that in mind too as you pray for your elders, as you, as you pray for Jason in particular. Keep, keep that extra section of the account in mind as you talk to him. And as you talk about him in your homes, encourage him and do that regularly. I mean, don't for a minute think that encouraging your pastor is a bad thing somehow. I think Christians can get that in their minds. And, and you know, I mean, it'd be very hard for Jason to preach this to you, but I'm leaving at the end of the day, so I'm going to preach this to you. And if it gets back to my congregation, fine. It's a good thing to encourage your your pastor. I, re I remember walking around during the Sunday school hour at, at Third Avenue. This was years and years ago. There's a guy that isn't even there anymore. But I was walking past this one particular Sunday school class, and I heard this guy sort of wrapping up, and I heard my name coming out of the room. And I thought, oh, well, I'm going to like stick around outside the door here and see, what, see what's being said. And, and the Sunday school teacher was saying something like, listen, I know that all of you want just at the end of the service to just rush up to Pastor Greg and tell him what a great sermon it was and encourage him and all the rest of it. He said, I would tell you not to do that because we don't want our pastor getting a big head. 
And I was like, oh my goodness, can you just be a pastor for like two days? There's very little, very little danger of, of that happening in most churches. Do you know what happens? You know what happens in a, in a pastor's heart when encouragement doesn't come and, and it, it is sort of called for? Do you, know, do you know what starts to happen when it doesn't come? What starts to happen is that in that space that encouragement ought to fill, other things start to grow, like bitterness and resentment and tiredness. But when encouragement comes into that space like it's supposed to, the pastor typically, I think, I mean, I, I know Jason, and, and I hope I know my own heart. A pastor doesn't typically take that stuff and then, and then shove it up into his head so that his head gets bigger. I mean, what, what a pastor will do is let that wind of encouragement blow through to blow out all the bitterness and all the rest of it. But then he blows it on through to the glory of Christ. And as long as there's a strong, steady wind blowing through that space, bitterness disengagement, anger, tiredness. They don't have room to grow. They don't have space to grow. Encourage your pastor and do it regularly. Anyway, after telling Titus to appoint these elders, he lays out some descriptions of what such a man should be like, so who an elder should be. And the overriding idea, he mentions it twice in this paragraph, is that he should be above reproach. It doesn't mean perfect. doesn't mean without sin. doesn't mean that he never makes a mistake. But just an example of a Christian. This is what a Christian looks like, right? He messes up. He sins. He says things out of turn sometimes. Yeah, all, all of that happens. But he then responds to those things as a Christian. Asks for forgiveness. Says, I'm sorry. And means it. He's above reproach in that way. He talks in two categories, really. We're not going to spend a lot of time looking at these. But basically, he says, first of all, that this kind of man is supposed to be a godly husband and, and father. He's supposed to be a husband of one wife. His children are to be faithful. I don't, I don't think that actually means believers there. So it's, it's not like Elias has got to be a Christian at three years old. That's not what that means. What it means is, is faithful. I mean, there are times in the Bible where, where that word is used to describe Jesus. And when it says Jesus is that word, it doesn't mean Jesus is a Christian. That doesn't make any sense. There's another place in the Bible where it says that God is that word. And it doesn't mean God is a Christian. It means faithful, right? It means, it means obedient. That's what it says. In other words, what Paul is saying there is that an elder's just got to have the ability to maintain authority and peace in his home. Because if he can't do that in his home, then how's he going to be able to do that in the church? Second thing Paul does there after he talks about the family is that he gives a list of things that describe what kind of person an elder should, should be. He's got five things that a guy's not supposed to be and then seven things that he is supposed to be. So if you look at verse 7 there, he's not to be arrogant. He's not supposed to be quick-tempered. He's supposed to be able to handle difficult situations without, without being quick-tempered, right? Without, without getting angry. It's one who, one who makes peace and turns away wrath. I mean, a pastor's got plenty of opportunities through the course of a week and the course of a year to not turn away wrath, but to embrace it. I mean, Jason, you're going to get emails at like, you know, your service starts at 10 o'clock. You're going to be preaching by 1020. You're going to get an email at 9.59 a.m. that just lights your fuse to no degree. And you're going to have to deal with that without being quick-tempered. There are going to be times, Oscar, Dave, where elders are going to be unreasonable. Members aren't going to understand the 
unique spot that you're in as you try to lead the church. And there are going to be times through the course of your ministry that it's going to be infuriating. And you can't get infuriated. Period. Paul says not to be a drunkard. Don't be controlled by a desire for strong drink. Don't be violent. In other words, don't be pugnacious and ready to fight. I think that's the most important lesson that nobody ever told me when I stepped into the pastorate is that you have to be a person who looks to bring peace in every situation, not peace at all costs, but peace at great cost to you in particular. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the confronters. And do you have to confront sometimes? Yes, of course you do. You have to confront sometimes. It requires wisdom to do that. But just notice Paul's admonition here is don't be one who is spoiling for a fight. You'll kill the church like that. Don't be greedy for gain. Be instead, he says, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, and holy, disciplined. And then look what Paul says there. He says, he says an elder needs to be one who holds firm to the word as taught. Why is that? Well, this brings up the third point. It's so he can defend the church against her enemies. Point number three, that last paragraph. See, the church's enemies. See, the reason the churches in Crete needed men like this to be their leaders, men who could hold fast to the word, who could instruct and rebuke, is that it seems that these churches in Crete were being racked by people who were denying the faith of the gospel in a, in a particular way. It's hard to say exactly what that way was, but if you, if you look down through this paragraph, you, you get some flashes of what it was, but you also get flashes of just how bad the whole thing was. Look at verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So that tells us a little of what's going on. They, Paul says, must be silenced. Why? Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Upsetting whole families. That doesn't mean that the families are just upset. Like, you know, Pastor, I'm upset at you. That's not what it means. It means that this teaching is overturning entire families, breaking them apart, causing them to capsize and sink. Verse 12, he says this sort of funny thing. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And what the Cretan prophet meant to do was sort of twist you in in a logical, you know, funny thing. Because if he's a Cretan saying Cretans are always liars, well, if he's lying about them always being liars, then he must be telling the truth. But that means they're liars. But that means he's not... You see the logical thing? Paul just cuts right through that and says, you know what? It's all true. I'm not a Cretan, but Cretans are liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. In fact, in Greek, so bad was this reputation of the Cretans that they made up a word to mean lie. And you know what that word was? Cretize. If you cretized, you were lying. So Paul says, Titus, along with Elders of the church should rebuke them severely and, and silence them. In other words, what these elders ought to do is act as shepherds and guardians of the church. I do think it's interesting, given what we were saying before, that if you look in verse 13, though, even here, the goal is not to just pull out the Holy Ghost bazooka and blast these people to kingdom come. But the goal of rebuking and silencing so that they themselves and the people tempted by their false teaching would become sound, healthy again in the faith and not run off 
after false teaching. Now, I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going on at FBC Hacienda Heights. My guess is that you're not dealing with any sort of you know, immediate false teaching in the church right now. But I do think as we close, there are just a couple of things to learn from Paul's wrangling with these false teachers. First, here's the first thing. Be careful that you as a church member don't become one of them. Be careful that you as a church member don't become one of them. False teaching seems, I think, to most of us as Christians, really, really exotic until it gets inside of us. And it's literally always like one little book away, one little video away, one little podcast away from getting into our hearts. I mean, I mean, think about it. How hard is it? You've probably seen it happen. How hard is it to get a hold of some idea and then you just lock down your mind and you refuse to listen to anybody around you? You refuse to listen even to your, your elders. How hard is it for that to happen? It's not very hard. So friend, don't be so arrogant as to think that you all by yourself are competent to avoid error. You're not. And that's why God gave you a church. I mean, for that matter, it's, it's also not hard at all for members of a church to start doing exactly what it seems like these false teachers were doing, which is handing down certain commandments of men that we say, this thing either must be done or shall not be done or else you are not a Christian or a real one at least even though the Bible says absolutely nothing about the thing that we're insisting is the mark of a Christian. I mean, you can think about things over the, over the years that have threatened to split maybe your church, certainly other churches. I mean, I remember Third Avenue way back in the day, 2002 and three, was almost split in two by some members demanding that it was completely off limits for a Christian to take government health insurance, for instance. I know of another church in Louisville that was almost split down the middle because some church members began to insist that the only way to be a real Christian parent was to use cloth diapers. All of us felt the strains in 2020. Do we wear masks or do we not? Do we social distance or do we not? Do we close the church down for a few weeks or do we not? One of the jobs of elders is to Make sure that what it means to be a Christian doesn't get muddied up with laws and commandments and requirements that God never placed on his people in the first place. So help them in that work. Take care that you keep scripture as your standard and not how you would prefer to see people behave. If the word of God doesn't talk about it, then you probably shouldn't be laying it down as a commandment. Here's the second and last thing. Encourage your elders in their guard against those false teachers. Encourage your elders in their guard against those false teachers and teachings. Friends, I hope it's a source of huge joy and comfort to you to know that God has given you elders who are committed to guarding this church and guarding you in particular against Satan's schemes. Because Satan is absolutely scheming against this church. I promise you. There are plans being laid in hell right now to destroy this church. And part of your elder's job is to guard you against those plans. So brothers and sisters, you, you, need, to know, you need to know that your elders take it as their duty to stand on the walls and watch. Day in and day out, week in and week out, to keep their swords drawn, to guard against ideas and schemes that could ruin and crack this church all the way to the bottom. I remember the first time I was a member of a church that had elders and I was invited in to uh, sit in on one of the elders meetings. And 
that that elder board took a good amount of time. It was a small church, and so uh, they they would they would take every single elders meeting, half the church, and and pray for half the membership of the church every every single meeting. And and I just remember watching these. I think it was five men at the time sitting around a table, just going around praying for about a hundred names. You know, over the course of about an hour and fifteen minutes, that's what they did, and and just having this amazing sense of being inside the walls of the fortress. And now I've got this air cover taking care of me spiritually. It was an amazing feeling. And, and I hope you feel that. I hope you rejoice in the fact that God has given you in your elders some spiritual air cover. And I hope you'll thank God for it. And friends, I hope you'll take the opportunity to encourage your elders and especially your new pastor as he does that work. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness. We thank you for uh, the installation of Pastor Jason as uh, an elder in this church, as the the preaching elder in in this church today. Lord, we pray that you would give him a long and faithful ministry here at First Baptist Church. Lord, we pray that people would be made more like Jesus through the preaching of your word. We pray that people would come to know Jesus and be saved and, and come to him as their Lord and Savior and Redeemer in faith and find forgiveness of their sins through him and his work. God, we pray that you would bless this church. We pray that you would do it good. We pray that you would grow it spiritually. We pray that you would grow it numerically. Lord, we pray that you would grow it in its witness here in Hacienda Heights. And we pray all of that in the name of Jesus and always to his honor and glory. Amen.